Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse just swung into theaters to a massive success critically and commercially. Let's break down the second film in this soon-to-be trilogy. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We just saw Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse and had an absolute blast in theaters at IMAX. I found this film to be groundbreaking, bombastic, propulsive. It was an amazing Spider-Man adaptation, and I found myself floored by all the surprises and twists along the way. I can't wait for the third film, but let's break down this incredible animated film. Right now, this is a 95% Critic score in Rotten Tomatoes, ninety-eight percent audience score in Rotten Tomatoes. Who gives it a bad review? Man? A, a nine point one on IMDb, which I'm sure will come down after a couple of weeks, like most films do. Their opening weekends are massive. This one had a seventeen million dollar preview on Thursday night. We're filming this Friday morning, even though it's coming out on Monday, but we are seeing that it's tracking for probably over a hundred million dollars at the global box office. Yeah, I was expecting um, a little bit more. That's about a one ten opening. Animated set- films yeah. don't have massive box office That's openings. True, yeah. you know what I mean, so this is actually going to be the, it's the second highest for an animated film behind Incredible The Incredibles two. Mm-hmm. And right now, general audience turnout from last night, according to Post Track on Thursday night for Spider Verse, was thirty nine percent guys under twenty five, twenty eight percent guys over twenty five. And then 21% girls under 25 and 11% girls over 25. Mm -hmm. So like 70-30 split basically between male and female. And the majority of people under 40. Vast majority. Vast majority. Vast majority. And again, this is the 10th Spider-Man film released in theaters. Obviously, the first was back in 2002 with Spider-Man 1. So this means we've averaged about one Spider-Man film almost every two years, which is wild. Well, Sony has to do that. They have to. Sony has to keep making adaptations. They don't have to do it every year. But they have to. I believe there's a four-year limit on owning the rights to the property, which is why if they so if Sony doesn't make doesn't release a Spider-Man film within like a four-year window, they lose the rights to the character. That's part of the contract they sign with Marvel, and so that's why there are so many Spider-Man adaptations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And this was directed by three directors, Joaquim Dos Santos, who we actually saw a Q&A with, and we're part of a Q&A with when we saw the film, and we'll talk about that experience and everything he had to say about the filmmaking process of behind this film. Ken Powers and Justin K. Thompson, written by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, who wrote the first film, and Dave Callahan. And I also want to talk about what it was like and what it meant to be directing this film as a committee, basically, in a little bit, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting process because it is, I mean, we'll get into it more extensively, but real quick, it's a four-year process making this film, and they actually jumped on board the last film on its tail end of production to get up to speed with the production. Well, Joaquin did. Yeah, exactly. So, but before we get into that, I mean, first reactions of the film, it was absolutely mind-blowing, and it had so much heart, which I think is really important. I think the family dynamics between Miles, Miles Morales and his family are the the main beat of the film and also his relationship with Gwen and Peter Parker. But the animation, obviously, 
I mean, what, I, we can't say anything that's already been sa- said before. I mean, say it, dude. It's just it was just the, some of the best animation I've ever seen on screen. Probably the greatest animation I've seen on screen. Uh, there was so much to it. There was so much creativity, and we learned that um, from the co-director that the animators were really given a free reign to uh, be as creative, artistic, and unique as they possibly could. And I found it to just be really interesting because there were so many layers to it. And not just from, obviously, from the other verse film, we saw that that different verses have different styles of animation. But I found that they were really even dialing the, turning the dial to even 11 even more so in this film. And what I found really interesting, and I've, I mean, for anyone who has experience using things like Procreate or animation programs, the layering of the images was really fascinating because you would see like brush strokes of different colors. Like take Wen's home for example, they use several different colors throughout color schemes throughout the sequences, and I liked how the colors would change depending on the emotion going on in the scene. So at one point Gwen's blue, at one point Gwen's more purple, at one point Gwen in the surroundings are white. So they they wove in the color palette of the film to connect motivation with the motivations of the characters and with their emotions, which I found to really be really fantastic. And it wasn't jarring. I was worried, is it going to be a little too much? But they did it pretty seamlessly to make you feel, you know, the blue sadness that she's feeling at times. And then the the white warmth that they're feeling when her and her father make up at the end and the entire room becomes white and they become uh, basically engrossed in white. And so I liked how the colors changed, but also just the brush strokes of backgrounds, they seem to have a life of their own where they would be slightly moving in their own way. You could see there were, it was more layer on layer on layer on layer that was like its own, each layer was its own um thing that kind of interacted in the space differently from the next layer on top of it or the layer below it. So I really liked how obviously animation involves dozens and dozens of layers per frame, but I like how all these layers of animation interacted differently with the space and that brought the entire image to life in a lot of ways from for every frame. And the fact that we had six different dimensions, all with unique animation styles, which I want to go over. I have them all listed off as well as over a thousand animators worked on this film, like you said, over the course of four years. There's over 240 characters and it's the largest animation crew in the history of cinema, which wow. is absolutely insane. How about we reread our Letterboxd reviews? Oh, yeah. Let's and then do we'll it. get into more stuff. So I gave this film four and a half stars. A feast for the eyes. Absolutely exceptional animation on a scale of creativity you could never dream up. Miles is back a little older, a little taller, and a little wiser. As the one and only Spider-Man in Brooklyn, life is as chaotic as every other Spider-Man we've come to love. School, family, and fighting crime stretch our young hero thin, but Miles is doing his best to adjust to every direction he's being pulled. Not to mention being faced with a horde of new multidimensional enemies. And they're not even as scary as his parents. However... There's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. That's a Morpheus quote right there. Miles knows what path to take, but it's up to him to walk it and not let anyone tell him what he can or can't do. Great review. Thanks, pal. Love it. I have a soaring and propulsive Spider-Man adaptation filled with groundbreaking creativity and a ton of heart. Daniel Pemberton's fantastic score is an absolute delight, and the ensemble cast of characters is entertaining and full of surprises. This is a much-welcomed entry into the superhero genre and the best comic book film of the year. So far, I gave it four and a half stars as well, uh, nine out of ten, I think. And why I said it was a welcome entry was because I have been getting so much superhero fatigue over the last several years, 
and uh, my motivations it and and even wanting to see a lot of these films has dropped um, um, trepidously over the last five years, and I feel I keep finding myself like not so much like really looking forward to see the next Marvel movie. I'm not dying to see the next DC movie. And it's because we've just been getting a lot of the same, you know, a lot of the repetitive things we've seen over and over again. And in a lot of ways, they've lost their creativity and um, I would say the ingenuity of the early films of the 2010s and even the 2000s of that genre. And then this film is something that really, I think, rejuvenates the genre, gives audiences something really exciting and fresh and new that they hadn't seen before, even in the first film. Uh, and then, like I said, they really dialed the to 11 on built on top of the first film so for me in terms of the genre of the comic book genre and superhero genre i think this is an absolute highlight of the last few years and something that i needed to keep myself interested in the genre because it is so exciting and so fresh and so for me i think it's a, an important film in comic book adaptations going forward between the flash and across the spider-verse my passion for superhero films has been reinvigorated and it's firing back up like i said i was also feeling some superhero fatigue recently last few years <laughs> absolutely feeling it the flash turned it on back for me i'm like let's go dc i'm so excited and then seeing this from sony uh and marvel studios collaboration as well with spider-verse across the spider-verse giving us something new again more invigoration and getting more excited about the superhero genre and the potential that we have going forward the next few years. And this was a really exciting film, and it was actually supposed to just be one movie. And so this is what the director, Joaquin, was explaining to us in person, was it's supposed to be one film, and then while they're basically trying to figure out the edit and the cut over the last couple of years, they basically realized that this is two movies. We can't tell the story in one. There's too much to fit in. And we really want to do the story justice. So basically, it was it was originally back in December 2022 called Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1. And then Part 2 was going to be released in March. And so basically, they found a midpoint, which is the end of this film. And then the second half would be Part 2. And then they changed that again to just Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And then the third film would be Spider-Man Beyond the, the Spider-Verse. And basically, a new preposition or a different preposition in each title, basically kind of telling or symbolizing parts of the movie. So Into the Spider-Verse in the film, first film, and then obviously going across the Spider-Verse in this film. I can only imagine what Beyond the Spider-Verse is going to mean for the third film. So that's really exciting that, you know, they they just took this movie, we were like, we need to make this a, a second film. So it's going to be a great trilogy eventually. It's kind of like the Holland Spider-Man titles, how they have a main theme involved in what the setting of the, uh, and also what's going on in the Spider-Man films in, in that regard too. So uh, I actually didn't know that there was going to be a third one when I walked into this film. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> and so by like two hours into this movie, no, like by like 2.10, uh, I was like, how are they going to wrap this up? This It's already been at least two hours. Like, how are they going to do this? Is this is a four-hour movie? I was like, oh my God, <laughs> how long is this movie? Because, I mean, when you find out that uh, Miles in the other dimension is the Prowler, and then the and then Gwen gets the crew together, and she's like getting ready to go. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Sorry, spoilers. I was like, wait, how how are they gonna wrap this all up in like five minutes? So then <laughs> then when it, they started setting it up, and then it was like, oh, they're setting it up for a third film. I was like, oh, okay, I got you, I got you. There's definitely a third one coming. And then when the director came out and revealed the beyond scheduled date for March next year. I was like, oh, okay, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Anthony didn't know, I guess, that there's a yeah. third film. And this is the the longest American animated film in history running in at two hours and 20 minutes. 
And you definitely feel it by the end of the film. I was a little, I was a little exhausted. Not gonna lie, just like lots of overstimulation from from everything happening on screen. So it was a, a lot to take in, and I was a bit fried at the end. But that's because there is so much incredible animation that we're experiencing at such a massive scale at IMAX on this giant screen. So mm-hmm. I was cooked. I'm like, good thing there's a part two because another two hours, I I might be a, a scrambled egg inside. Yeah, it sounded fantastic. Most notably the music. I would say, I'm not sure if there was something up with the mix at IMAX, but the dialogue was a little low. I don't know if you noticed it, especially in the opening, um, Gwen's opening act. It sounded, her dialogue was, I mean, the the mix, it might have been the mix because it seemed the the music kind of dominated her dialogue, especially the narration in the opening of the film. But I'm sure yeah. we saw it in a very specific yeah, theater. too. Yeah, we saw it in a specific theater. And it was an early release, so I'm sure. Um, let us know, guys, if you if you saw if you noticed a sound issue. But I noticed like I could sometimes couldn't really make out what she was saying in her narration. But um, it might have been just that theater and that mix, possibly. But uh, otherwise, I mean, I was really impressed with Pemberton's score. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. He's he's been working on a lot of great films lately. And he's he worked with Guy Ritchie a few times. He did this uh, previous film, Into the Spider Verse, which is great. And I, I think he's a really fresh voice in uh, music comp- composition. And for me, the score really elevated the film, both the emotional and dramatic moments, as well as the high octane action sequences. And I really liked some of the new themes he came up with. My favorite theme that he came up with was uh, Miguel O'Hara's Spider-Man 2099 theme. It was really fantastic. Every time you heard um, that high-pitched electronic squeal that he came up with, really fantastic stuff. He got very creative with the music, and I just found myself enthralled by the music that was created. And this film had a lot of great twists, a lot of great surprises, and it had two strong villains, Miguel O'Hara being a villain of the film, but also Spot being a great villain. I thought Spot was just going to be like an opening scene villain to game day like a day in the life you would see in a superhero movie of like him just stopping this guy but i really liked how inter- interesting the character became and evolved and he's turned into like a really great villain that i'm looking forward to seeing in the in the in the final film and it was it, i liked it cuz i was like oh this guy's just like kind of like a joke character that they're throwing in to get us up to speed with miles but it ended up being you know the he's going to be the main villain of the trilogy so i thought they did a great job with spot and also, like twenty minutes into it, I'm like, "Who is?" I was like, "Who is that?" And then I was like, "Is that Schwartzman?" In my, I was like, "Is that Jason Schwartzman in my head?" <laughs> and then I was like, halfway through the film, I'm like, "It's definitely Schwartzman." And then when I saw his name in the credits, I was like, "I knew it." I, I thought he sounded so familiar. Also, someone who sounded so familiar, but I couldn't place it until after the film, and I looked it up. Uh, Miles's mom, Rio? she's she's the captain in Dexter. Oh yeah, she's the cap. I was like, how do I know this woman's voice? Like, it's, she sounds so familiar. And so, anyone who watched Dexter, she played the captain, and she was in ep- every episode basically. That's right, you're right. I was like, oh my god, of course, it all makes sense. Also, Metro Boomin added quite a bit of music and curated a great soundtrack, as well as making some tracks for this film. And like we said earlier, this movie was directed by three directors, which is unusual, but not necessarily. In the animated genre, Pixar's had plenty of films directed by multiple directors. Now, we had a great opportunity to see this film at IMAX headquarters and then presented with a Q&A from one of the directors, Joaquin Dos Santos. And he took a bunch of questions from the crowd as well as with Collider, who was running the screening as well. And he basically explained the process of what it was like to have three directors for a film and what it basically means. And so, so he came in, like we said earlier, the last year of production on Into the Spider-Verse. 
had these said just to get cut off to speed. And he actually described it real funny. He said it was it was like the scene in Saving Private Ryan when the fresh soldiers are coming in after the beach battle, and they're all like fresh faced, and they and they're walking past the other soldiers that just survived the battle. <laughs> and he's like, I was like fresh faced and so excited. Everyone's like, you have no idea what you're in for, man. Because he he described these movies as absolute chaos from a production standpoint for four years straight, and they're they're right in the middle of finishing up. Beyond the Spider-Verse. So he's in the middle of chaos, but I'm sure he got a little bit of break this week doing all the press and everything. Mm-hmm. It's probably a little grateful to have some time off. But he basically said, every day is chaos, it's insanity, but he loves it, and I'm sure anyone would in that position. And so co-directed with Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson. Now, the way they split up their duties basically is for the first year of production, they're in every meeting together, they're running everything together, every aspect of the film. And then after a year, they basically kind of split up and are running their own specialty departments and specialties for the film. So Dos Santos, he says his specialty and expertise is the storyboarding, the camera angles, figuring out what kind of shots work best for situations in all the scenes. And then he explained that we had uh, Ken Powers was handling a lot of the story and writing aspects with the screenplay writers for the film as well. He's a terrific screenwriter. Uh, He wrote One, One Night in Miami. And then also Justin K. Thompson handled and was in charge of basically the visual effects. So the three of them constantly working together the first year in every meeting together, but then the last three years of production and filming for this movie, they're basically just seeing each other in the halls, knowing what the other people are in charge of it and doing, and just trusting that everyone has their departments handled, high-fiving in the hallways, just hanging out whenever they can. Just barely touching base in a yeah, way. Basically yeah, basically like, hey, you got that thing? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm taking care of this. Day. Oh, yeah, perfect. All right, thanks for handling that. Mm-hmm. But just kind of just always working near each other, but controlling their own aspect of the film. It was really interesting to see and hear from him uh, describe the process. And also, Lord and Miller were pretty heavily involved in production as well from afar because obviously they wrote it, but um, Dos Santos did say there were multiple times that where the Lord and Miller would get back to them and ask them to make new changes to how shots were set up, how angles were set up. And there's, he said there was one scene where they asked us to change the angle of the photography in a completely different way because they thought it would work better shot from a different side of the, of the scene. So the Lord and Miller were still involved as a producer level, giving notes and helping out with production in any, in any way they felt they needed to. So it was a huge collaborative process. And also Dos Santos said that they locked picture last week. Last Friday, yeah. So they just finished the. They literally just finished the film, um, only a, several days before its actual release around the world. So that's pretty crazy. And he even in he did say like they give animators a lot of freedom to the point where he said there were multiple sequences that um, last week he saw for the first time finished. You know what I mean? And so I like that because it's not like one person's like no, it's like this. We have to have it like this. This is how every scene is going to be. I like how. It's, they seem to have a huge collaborative process, not just amongst the three directors, but amongst everybody involved in the film uh, in, in every uh, regard of the hierarchy. And I, I really like that because it, it seeps into the film in terms of its, its creativity because it, and it really lends itself to the multiverse idea because if you have so many styles and so many eggs in the basket, so many, so many cooks in the kitchen, it wouldn't make sense if it was just set in one dimension and in one verse. But since you have so many verses you can work with, all you, the more cooks in the kitchen, the better, lending their own um, ideas, lending their own creativity and their own artistic styles into the film. And, and this is a movie where you watch the animation and there isn't a singular form of animation style. And even amongst 
obviously there's several dimensions we see in this film, but even amongst those, like just in Gwen's dimension, you see several styles of art in her, just in her dimension. You know what I mean? So every scene is like, you see different styles of animation, which I think is really incredible to behold and only works because of the multiverse format of the story. And man, is the multiverse hot right now or what? It's it, everything. It, it, is the, it is the trend of Hollywood, I think, in, at this current moment. The multiverse is the trend. It's everywhere. It's in a lot of movies. Even uh, Oscar-winning movie, the Best Picture was a multiverse film. And just to stay on the dimensions for a little bit, so there's six different dimensions, and each has its own unique style, and I'm going to list them off right now. So obviously you have Miles' dimension, Earth 1610, which we're very familiar with, and so I won't really go into detail on that because we've seen it multiple times, and it's kind of our home base for the Spider-Verse movies. Then we have Earth 65, which we're introduced to. It is the home of Gwen Stacy, was designed to look like impressionistic watercolor paintings. The animation team created a similar simulator to generate this style and used a visual palette that reflects Gwen's emotions like a three-dimensional mood ring. Anthony did a great job describing that earlier, how the, the different color palettes depending on her mood at the time. This style was also intended to remind the audience about the covers of the Spider-Gwen comic books. It reminded me of Loving Vincent, that Vincent Van Gogh film that came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. That uh, was made with all ago. paintings. Yeah, it was yeah. all paintings. It, kind of, it looked like that. It was really beautiful. I think it was probably aesthetically my favorite dimension. Then we have, uh, we have alternate dimension called... Earth 50101, which the crew nicknamed Mumbatton after Mumbai in Manhattan due to the world being based on the one from Gotham Entertainment's Spider-Man India comic book series. That was a terrific look and, and new like design for Dimension as well that I really adored. Mumbatton, Mumbatton was my favorite verse in this film. Then we had Nueva, Nueva York, the futuristic New York City from Marvel 2099 world based on the neo-futuristic illustrations of Sid Mead which was an unfinished look, and this is where Miguel O'Hara was the Spider-Man in his dimension. He was the only Spider-Man in this dimension mm -hmm. until everything changed for him. Then we had the Lego dimension, which was an absolute <laughs> blast. Now, this was actually created by a 14-year-old and his father, and I'm sure you've all seen on the internet recently that this kid has been making uh, like basically trailers of live-action films, but... And uh, also, I think he did the Spider-Verse, Into the Spider-Verse, but in Lego form, mm -hmm. and they hired him and his father... Child labor laws got a little <laughs> twisted there to make this incredible dimension, which was such a delight. I think it was maybe the funniest part of the film. I like how Miguel's like, you're one of our best. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was hilarious, but that's such a cool story to have a 14-year-old helping make mm -hmm. a Spider-Man movie. What a dream come true. I'm sure he's going to have a bright future at Sony Pictures going forward. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to be making animated films pretty soon. And then the final dimension is Earth-42, and this was an alternate dimension that Miles thought he was in his home dimension, but turns out he's in a different dimension where his father, his the other Miles' father, this, this dimension's father is dead, Uncle Aaron is still alive, and Miles himself in this dimension is the Prowler. Yeah, once his mom didn't know who Spider-Man was, I was like, oh, he's in the wrong place. In this, in this dimension... There's chaos everywhere because there's an absence of no spider person. There's no spider person here because this is Earth-42 where a big twist revealed at the end the spider from this dimension was the one that bit Miles. Mm -hmm. So we found out at the end of the film that Miles was never supposed to be Spider-Man. He was never supposed to get bitten. But because of the explosion in that multidimensional structure, whatever it's called, 
when that happened, when actually the guy who when Spot before he became Spot, he pulled that spider out of that dimension accelerator, mm-hmm. whatever it's called. Someone, I'm sorry, I'm doing my best. And um, that spider bit Miles. That was from this dimension. That's why there's mayhem in this dimension. There's no Spider-Man. New York is in shambles. The Sinister Sticks is controlling the streets while police forces cannot fight back. And you can assume that Miles, being the Prowler, is probably an ambiguous anti-hero. I'm guessing it's in this in this dimension. Well, I certainly hope that he's a full-on villain. I think it would be more interesting um, because it shows the uh, the facets of humanity in a really cool way, and how you know. You're shaped by the world you're born within in a lot of ways, and Miles born into this world where his father's dead. There's no law and order. There isn't someone to look up to, who except Uncle Aaron. I'm saying who who believes in things like justice, and the person you, your father figure is a criminal. It would lead you down a criminal path in a way, and you saw hints of that with Aaron in the first film, but he always had his dad to steer him on the straight line uh, between law and order and criminality which and, and informed him as uh, an eventual superhero. So he doesn't have that in this world, and so he was led in the wrong direction on the wrong path. I, w- I think, I'm sure, maybe my guess is everyone will join forces to fight Spot at the end, but I think it would be more interesting if Miles Morales, 42, is a prowler, is the prowler and maintains his villain status throughout the, the film. Although I'm not sure audiences would like to accept that. Though. Well, I'm not going to just say he's straight up a villain. Yeah. I think he's an anti-hero, mm-hmm. and he has to do what he has to do to survive in this world, in this dimension where there's no Spider-Man, sure. and the Sinister Six are in control. So he had to kind of use his intelligence to become a superhero with the, the Prowler and the Prowler technology, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting, which he probably developed with Uncle Aaron. I'm sure we'll learn a lot more about yeah. Miles and Earth-42 in the next film. I would I say can't wait. Uh, my favorite portion of the film was the last 20 minutes yeah i thought that the film ended in grand fashion um and i thought it was a really fantastic twist that i didn't see coming and once he was tied once miles was tied up on the punching bag and and then we learn and then aaron says he's not the prowler i was like fuck miles is the prowler isn't he and then miles shows up uh, in the background i thought that was a really fantastic twist reminiscent of you know a big twist in a film like the empire strikes back really really excellent story beat and it got me excited for the third film but i would say my favorite bits of the film was the last 20 minutes i thought they did a phenomenal job and there's also a ton of easter eggs in this film Paul, can we stay on that real quick yeah sure before we get to easter eggs it was also my favorite part because it was a really emotional and pivotal moment for miles to finally understand who he is to accept who he is to say that no one can tell me what not to do and i'm not afraid anymore i'm not afraid of hiding who i am afraid that i'm spider-man anymore and he's got this great speech that he's given to his mom he's finally gonna tell his mom he's finally gonna tell his dad that he's spider-man and he opens the jack and she's like what the hell is Sp- who's spider-man i have no idea yeah. I'm, and i'm like wait does she like is it because she's like not hip she doesn't know about spider-man and obviously <laughs> her dad like his dad's coming home i'm sure and he'll know like oh my god you're spider-man come here bud this is so cool and so crazy or if that's how he reacted but then to find out that there is no spider-man that's why Rio doesn't know who the hell spider-man is and this confession really means nothing to her it's a joke at first i was like why doesn't she care that he's spider-man i was mm-hmm. like devastated and then to find out that we're in a different dimension because Uncle Aaron's alive. I thought that was a great twist, and I think the Prowler thing was also an excellent addition. It's kind of like he's Darth Vader in a way if you're comparing it to Empire Strikes Back. Even with the mask. Yeah, yeah it's pretty, <laughs> I thought it was pretty epic. I, I thought the same thing. Yeah, it was it was a great twist. 
And, and it makes sense to end it there. Yeah. And it makes sense that if you look at this film and if they have a whole nother movie, it's a good thing they broke it up into two. It would have, yeah, it clearly was too much um, to fit into one movie because, I mean, they would have been obviously sacrificing a lot of story and a lot of character if they just made this a, a huge battle finale for this film. So it makes sense to, to split it up into a third film for sure. And so getting into the Easter eggs, um, this is all we could find so far, and I'm sure there will be more Easter eggs revealed once people watch this movie more times and it gets released online. Um, but obviously... Donald Glover's cameo as Uncle Aaron and the Prowler was a highlight. It was funny to see him live action in the animated world. You know, I kind of got a feeling of uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit with this yeah. movie, with the live action characters here and there in mm -hmm. the animation. Like, specifically with that, I'm sure the other Easter egg is going to bring up. Yeah, so uh, speaking of live action, we see Toby um, consoling Uncle Ben as he dies, and then we see uh, um, <clears throat> Andrew Garfield. At his moment, watching um, Stacy die, and so tying to the live actions, I'm not sure why they didn't throw Holland in there um, when May died. I was expecting that, but they didn't. Maybe but, some sort of rights issue. There must have been some issue, because I'm not sure why, though, because, I mean, Sony is the producer of those films, ultimately. But it, I was expecting to see Holland, but we didn't. But maybe they're saving it for the future. And also... Uh, the Comics Code badge, which opens the beginning of the film, uh, it's a badge proclaiming approved by the Comics Code Authority. This is an old authority in the world of comics back in the day, and comic books would publishers would submit it to this CCA for approval for distribution of their comics. So it, they stopped submitting it years ago, but it was a former thing that they had. It was like a, a loop they had to walk through to, sum, to submit their films. Um, the spot was actually the bagel guy, which I thought was really funny. Jonathan on and it, he was it was one of the funniest little beats of Into the Spider-Verse when he's leaving that office and throws the bagel at the guy's head. Yeah. So I like how they tied it to that silly little moment in the first film in terms of the spots creation. And just to stay on that and how he became the arch nemesis now of, of Miles, how they kind of created each other where he created Miles by bringing that spider from Dimension 42 in, which bit Miles, but then Miles created Spot from him when he destroyed that accelerator, the interdimensional accelerator, whatever. I think it's a particle accelerator. Particle accelerator. Yeah. And when that exploded, he turned into Spot, basically. So they mm -hmm. created each other, which is really interesting dynamic for an, an, a hero and a nemesis. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the uh, evolution of Spot in the film. And then Holland and Cumberbatch are referenced in the film by Miguel O'Hara, who says, Doctor Strange in that little nerd on Earth 19999. He is, of course, talking about Spider-Man No Way Home and how that duo nearly destroyed the, the, the universe. Venom has a reference when... Uh, Spot is wandering through the multiverse exploring and he goes into the convenience store popping his head through a portal to face Mrs. Chen, the shopkeeper um, in the Venom movies. I thought that was really cute. Um, Miguel is explaining the concept of canon events. We see obviously crucial plot points of the other Peter Parkers and Spider-Men experiencing the tragic loss of people they love, which is going to be an inevitability for all of them. Gwen's fall is a great reference. So Gwen Stacy obviously has one of comic book history's most infamous deaths falling to her death. And we see this portrayed in the in live action in the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man 2 film. However, in across Spider-Verse, Spider-Gwen references this when she's falling in Mombatton, but then she is saved by Miles. But it was a, a reference to that for sure. 
there are two video game references to the Sony Spider-Man video games. Uh, the first one is when Miles' roommate is on his PlayStation playing the game. And the next, we actually see this version of Spider-Man in captivity at the Spider Society, labeled as Insomniac Spider-Man. Jeff Koons, the artist, is referenced in the film during Gwen's opening. It's that big um, balloon dog piece of art. That's mm. It's a famous piece of that art. That opens up, yeah. yeah. It's Jeff Koons, that's one of his major styles of artwork. He's become one of the, he's actually become I think the one of if not the most successful modern artist alive, and so that's a, a reference to his artwork in that film. So there's plenty of references I'm sure that we missed. Banksy was yeah, brought Banksy up. was brought up. Post Malone. <laughs> I think that's a Banksy. <laughs> that's actually Post Malone saying that. Oh, is it really? Yeah. So he actually said it in the first film talking about the signposts, and then this film with that bit. So it's, they actually just use that dialogue that Post Malone said in the first film. There's also a, a bunch of just like fun. Um, billboards and stuff in the backgrounds. Dos Santos said that they were just like basically having fun and inside jokes. My favorite that I saw was um, there was a, a soda billboard and it said uh, it, it was just like a random off-brand design. It said conventional soda brand for the <laughs> billboard. I thought that was funny. That cracked me up. Yeah, I'm sure at repeat viewings you'll see so many little Easter eggs. And just to stay on the MCU connections... The directors claim that the film is not tied to the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, despite that line with the uh, direct reference to Spider-Man No Way Home that you brought up earlier about the Doctor Strange and that little nerd back on Earth. One nine 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 nine. It was meant to be a meta gag and a throwaway line. Lord and Miller came up for the film's comedy with no intentions or connections to be connected to the MCU, although, la- although later international promotional material contradicted this by showing a brief clip of Spot visiting Mrs. Chen in the live-action Sony's Spider-Man universe. There's so many different universes going on right now. (laughs) For Let There Be Carnage and No Way Home, which are all kind of connected technically. So it's not technically connected, but is kind of connected in different ways by going into Venom's verse and and No Way Home's verse, which are connected in different ways by interdimensions. So it's connected to the MCU, but also not connected to the MCU at the same time. And the word beyond being used for the third film could mean two things. I think there's two major possibilities. Either they can um, create a live-action version of these characters. I mean, all the actors are pretty... I mean, obviously they're not teens. Um, uh, more in Steinfeld, they're adults. But, I mean, I think they could pass... It would pass off fine if they transitioned into live-action. That could possibly happen. Um, but also beyond the Spider-Verse could mean maybe going beyond verses to a different dimensional plane where they can actually make adjustments to the entire multiverse that could would be what beyond means i'm guessing i'm guessing they won't go live action because it didn't i would say they're saving that for younger actors so they can build a franchise live action because amy pascal announced there will be live action adaptations of the Miles Morales story. Which was news to the directors of this yeah, film. Exactly. They didn't see that coming. So I would say they're gonna do that with another actor playing Miles Morales being they've been cast a teenager, as opposed to having Shamik Moore play the role because he's in his twenties, so they wouldn't want him to play a fifteen year old. So well, I mean, Toby was what twenty nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we played this like a seventeen, eighteen year old. He was a senior. True. <laughs> you know, he was a senior in high school. Well, I think they accidentally revealed that they won't do live action with it by yeah, saying yeah. that the, the director accidentally by saying he had no idea that that was coming. Yeah. So, but I would I would just say I mean it's still an a, a fun idea if there could be a sequence where they enter a live action realm and it's like Ste- hey Steinfeld is playing Gwen and 
Moore's playing Miles and and then Jake Johnson's actually playing Peter Parker. Like that would be fun. Like a cool shot. They might do yeah. a shot like that, or maybe like a, a a couple minute long sequence. Um, I think that's possible. But I wouldn't say that they're gonna tie that to them being live action performers for the stories in the future. I would say for the Morales live action, they'll go a whole new cast. That'd be funny because it's that's very SpongeBob. Why not? That's very yeah. SpongeBob SquarePants esque. Mm-hmm. Like leaving Bikini Bottom and yeah. going to live action, and it's like a real sponge and a real starfish with humans. So and, and uh, imagine the reaction that would get. People would explode. People's, <laughs> I think their people's heads would actually explode in theaters. There'd probably be an issue. <laughs> I think that, I think it would be a lot of fun if they did. Just like they entered a realm and, I mean, a verse, and it's all they're they're all live action versions of themselves. I agree. That would be fun. And there's still so much to talk about. But how about we head on into our intermission? Then we'll come back into across the Spider Verse and talk even more about it. But before we continue, the very best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to leave a five star review on either Spotify or Apple. Apple also gives you the ability to leave a written review, which we love to read off during the intermission. I'll get to one in a minute. And also the other best way to support our show is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. As little as two dollars, we have tiers at two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars. $25 and $100. Every tier comes with a bunch of awesome perks like free merch and video shoutouts and messages, as well as every tier gets access to the weekly chat, which is now exclusively on Patreon every Wednesday, as well as a bonus episode that we post every Thursday or Friday on Patreon only. So you get two free episodes no matter what tier you're in. The $10 gets you access to our Discord and watch parties, which are always a blast. $25 you get a cool perk like a custom episode that will cover just for you. You pick a topic. $100 tier is the ultimate tier. You get a private watch party. You get to come on the show after three months. And all these tiers also have awesome and fun merch. So thanks for being a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. And our episode is sponsored by our friends at movieposters.com. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at movieposters.com to get 10% off your order today. They have a giant selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable, as well as a shitload of posters for the Spider-Man movies. So if you want some Spider-Man posters, head on over to movieposters.com. They are high quality, look fantastic, very affordable. They also have sizes, framing, and even backlighting for all of your poster needs. Be sure to use our promo code RAIDERS10 at movieposters.com to get 10% off your order today. All right, let's head on into our intermission, beginning with the movie quote competition. You ready? Ready. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate, skate uphill. uphill. <laughs> Blade. <laughs> That's right. Here's my quote. He said the train is lost. How can a train be lost? It's on rails. <laughs> um, hmm. A train be lost. Unstoppable? No. Taking of Pelham 123? <laughs> Darjeeling Limited. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd get that. I know. I got a poster of it. Moving on. Big fan. To- <laughs> Big fan. Big fan. Big fan. Who, who directed that? <laughs> Wes Anderson. Guess this movie. We mo- know you know. <laughs> Guess this movie release here. This is just for everyone else in case they never heard of it. It's one of his underrated movies in Unseen. Spawn. <laughs> 1998. 97. Oof. Nice. Close. <laughs> That's a crazy movie. Yeah, that was awesome. We had a big action figure for Spawn, too. You were a huge yeah, fan. Yeah, I loved Spawn. Yeah, you're Spawn re- was you all- really he was one it. of my favorite characters as a kid. You were always playing with that that figure. Mm-hmm. My movie release here is 
Darjeeling Limited. When did it come out? Two thousand six. Two thousand seven. Oh my god. Not quite. Not quite. Not quite, not quite blonde, are you? <laughs> Movie pop quiz time. In Spider Man Two, what is the name of the pizza place Peter works at and is fired from? Shit. Um <laughs> I wanna be here. <laughs> then be here, Parker. <laughs> Oh, man. It's something, and they do 30 minutes or less, or your money back, and he rips the sticker off his helmet. Still, like, the one of the funniest scenes in the comic book movie is when he's in the closet with the brooms. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> with um, Emily Deschanel as the receptionist. Yeah, I'm not paying for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not paying for that. You're late. You're late. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, stole that guy's pizza! <laughs> I'm going Don's Pizza. Joe's Pizza. Joe's Pizza. <laughs> I knew it was some random guy's name. <laughs> it always is with the pizza place. Well, Joe's Pizza, I believe there is one in New York that's super famous. No, that's Ray's. Ray's? Ray's Pizza. R-A-Y. That's I, the big... I know how to spell Ray. No, I mean, no. For <laughs> listeners, in case they think it's Ray's, like R-A-Z-E. I'm not talking just to you. Talk. I'm, I, I like to talk to the listeners. You're just like in your own bubble over there. So Ray's Pizza... It's like that that big competition, like which is the original Ray's Pizza, mm-hmm. and which is like the because there's a big competition of who's the the first Ray's Pizza. Yeah, well, well, Joe's fame, Joe's Pizza is super famous. Yeah, there's probably a lot of Joe's Pizza famous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you looking it up? Yeah. Anthony's googling Joe's Pizza in New York. It's also City. called Famous Joe's Pizza. It's on. Ble- it's near Bleecker Street. Yeah, it's super famous. Super, super famous. Ray's Pizza. Ray's Pizza. There's even the joke in, um, I think it's Elf, where Santa Claus is like, there's like, there's like four Ray's Pizza, but there's like really only one original Ray's Pizza. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. The famous original Ray's Pizza. But I, I, bet, you, I bet you another one's like, but the real original Ray's Pizza. <laughs> it's like the Buffalo Wings <laughs> yeah. rivalry. Who's the first one? Yeah. <laughs> All right, here's my quiz question. Jason Schwartzman played the villain of what other comic book movie? Oh, that's, that's a good one. I'll give everyone a moment. <laughs> you know how long it took me to get everyone together? 40 minutes <laughs> to send all those emails. <laughs> Didn't you get my email? I skimmed, skimmed it. it. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. This movie felt like that at moments, too, with the different uh, visuals and animation. Because very few movies actually make you feel like you're in a comic book. But I think Spider-Verse, Scott Pilgrim do a great job of that. This movie was clearly made for comic book readers. Absolutely. 100%. Do we got any Raider haters, Anthony, or or unsubscribes? How we doing over there? Raider haters coming up. (laughs) Raider haters. What do we got here for Raider haters? We got... Josh Miguel on Catch Me If You Can. Okay, okay, wait, hold up. I don't concur. Amy Adams got famous because of Enchanted, not Ella Enchanted. <laughs> Unbelievable, the audacity. Unsubscribed. It's a good correction. I always, I always think it's called Ella Enchanted for some reason. Good, good correction. I always get it wrong. Um, that's it. We just recorded yesterday, so it's all good. Yeah. We don't need a million. One's fine. And then we have a great five star review on Apple Podcast oh, iTunes. Nice. From we're getting so many lately. I know it's been so nice to see them all. From Colton 007, so he's a secret. Can't <laughs> recommend enough. They have fun with it and know what they are talking about without being snobby. <laughs> After listening to their reviews, it's a lot of fun renting the movie and watching it and picking up on new things. Wicked good job, kids. Thanks, guy. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks guy. Colton. You're wicked awesome. Appreciate guy. it, Anthony. What's your uh, streaming recommendation? 
The Florida Project, Sean Baker's second film. It's really fantastic. It's an incredible film. Highly recommend checking it out ASAP. Mine is Inception. It's on HBO Max. I feel like it's a, an incredible, ambitious, and astounding movie that people forgot about. I feel like it's just kind of just how dis- could we forget? It kind of disappeared because it lived rent free in my head for for like four years after it came out. Mm-hmm. It still does at times. It was a pop culture phenomenon. It was, but I think yeah. people forgot about it. It's because it was pre pre social media, bro. It was right, yeah, 2010, like right yeah. when it was dropping. Pre social media. But man, that movie is still one of the, a visual feast for the eyes. Man, won the Oscar for cinematography for a reason, bro. Wally Fissa, kid. Wally, I, I love that film, and I, if you haven't seen it in a while, revisit it. It still holds up, and it's still incredible. It's also, I mean, incredible editing by Lee, Lee Smith. Incredible editing. Incredible. All right, let's get back into Across the Spider-Verse. And how about we start talking about like the movie and characters and plot? Let's do it, man. Which we've dabbled in a little bit, but I want to talk about the opening sequence, which is basically Gwen's origins in a way. Not how she got her spider belt, but basically what her life was like as Spider-Woman in her world Back on Earth, what was it? Five, six, fifty-two. No, on Earth. Hold on, I got it right here. On, we'll just call it Gwen's Earth. Gwen's Earth. Yeah. Gwen's Earth. Where, again, we have that really incredible graphic design with the uh, the watercolor paintings, basically, which is which is beautiful. And so, basically, she's Spider Woman, and her father is a police officer, and her pl- father's hunting her, trying to find the Spider Woman, and also she has Peter Parker as her best friend. And Peter Parker wants to be special just like her, turns himself into the lizard. Spider-Woman defeats him, and he eventually dies because of what he had done to himself with the experimentation. And her father thinks that Spider-Woman killed her, and then Spider-Woman reveals herself to her father before going into the new dimensions with like kind of the uh, spider-dimensional police that we learn about. It's kind of like the Harry Osborn at the end of Spider-Man yeah, setup. Yeah, in a lot of ways. And yeah. So now she, basically her father is kind of an enemy or nemesis to her to an extent and doesn't want, and just tries to arrest her at the end of the film after revealing herself as Gwen. So it's really Man, tough. that was cold trying to arrest her, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, damn. And then also uh, the, the issues she has with making friends because we all assumed, I think, from watching the first film that Gwen was... She's super cool and funny and charismatic, so you would assume she'd assume she's like super popular in a lot of ways, or mm-hmm. like have a bunch of cool friends. And she doesn't get along with anybody. She can't find anyone to connect with besides Peter, especially after Peter's death. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's something that she's been dealing with, and it was was keeping secret and hidden from the audience as well as from Miles. And we finally learn about her backstories. And I thought it was really sweet and terrific. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the Italian Falcon. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he was great. Funny. I like that. That was some of my favorite animation, the like parchment paper ink animation. I thought that looked really cool, um, blended into Gwen's world. I, I, I thought it contrasted and popped uh, really well. And the guy who voiced him was one of the Lonely Island guys. Yeah, Jerma Ticcone, he is the vulture bird-themed supervillain. Vulture, sorry, I said from Falcon. Renaissance-inspired universe, and it's basically parchment paper designed based off Leonardo da Vinci drawings. Yeah, and they made the vulture look like it was something that da Vinci did design. You yeah, know what I mean? It's really cool. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was one of my favorite characters of the film, I think. It was really fun. Do you want to go through some characters or you want to keep going on that? Let's go with the characters, man. So obviously, we know, we know about Miles, we know about Gwen Stacy and Brian Ty- Tyree Henry back is Jefferson Davies, Davis, Rio Morales, but then we have a great comeback or, or um, 
little return return of Peter Parker played by Jake Johnson, which was super fun to see him back in his new design with he's got the the pink bathrobe <laughs> and the baby around his chest. It's like he's fighting crime Dad with the baby. Mode. But then we have a uh, Spider Girl, his daughter, who clearly he married. Um, MJ back in his dimension had a baby. She's got the red hair. We see MJ later on. Jason Schwartzman is Dr. Jonathan on and the spot, like you said, was an excellent character. And just to really quick explain how he got his powers, I have it written down right here. Give me one second. So, like I said earlier, Miles inadvertently created his new multidimensional nemesis, just like this nemesis accidentally created Miles Morales. So while researching the multiverse travel for Fisk, Back in the original film, a scientist called Dr. Jonathan Owen, voiced by Jason Schwartzman, transports a radioactive spider to Miles' timeline. While Miles inhabits the dimension known as Earth-1610, the spider that bit him comes from Earth-42, which is why he starts glitching at the end of the film when he thinks he's in his home dimension. That's why he's sent there, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and that's why, yeah, that machine yeah. in the spider used the DNA from that spider to send him to Earth-42. So, yeah. in a sense, Dr. Johnson, Jonathan created Miles Spider-Man. Similarly, by exploding Fist's particle collider, Miles transformed Dr. Jonathan's body, turning him into the supervillain, the Spot. The Spot can use portals to travel through space and decides his sad origin story turns him into Spider-Man's nemesis. Unfortunately, Miles is too busy with his life to give I'm the villain, your nemesis. <laughs> give the villain, you're like the the villain of the week. Uh, give the villain the attention he wants. As a result, the Spot crosses the multiverse while trying to increase his powers, slowly becoming capable of jumping between dimensions. By doing this, the Spot becomes a danger to Spider people everywhere, which is why the villain becomes a top priority for the Spider Society, a multiverse team of Spider people dedicated to fighting time space anomalies. And like you said earlier, it was a fun intro. You thought it was going to be just like the the opening villain, just kind of like the rhino in mm-hmm. Spy- Amazing Spider-Man 2. And turns out to be a really terrifying and terrific villain by the end of this film and halfway through even. And then I can't wait to see him in the third act. And especially once he hit the other collider in the other dimension to really become even more powerful and he basically inverted his color scheme where at first they were making fun of him like, what are you supposed to be, like a cow? Because of the <laughs> white with the black spots. Now he's black with white spots and interdimensionally ch- super powerful. And I can't wait to explore what his potential is and what his powers are going on to the next film. Yeah, and Dos Santos said they were thinking about using Spot as the villain because I believe, I'm, I mean, obviously y'all know we don't read, we've never read comics really. But he, from what he said, I gathered that like Spot was kind of always been like a B-level villain in the Spider-Man comics, but he was talking to an eventual animator that they got on board, and the animator was like... Well, he created the spot, that yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, so they were they were out for a drink. He said, so what do, you think, what do you think about spot? And he's like, that's interesting that you say spot. And so I think that it's funny that the that little nugget of a conversation built uh, their idea for the ultimate villain of this story for its overarching... Um, two films. He's like, the spot's cool. Yeah, I mean, spot's y'all, cool. y'all should try using the spot. Yeah. I think it was a really great selection because it's connected with the multiverse and having a, a villain that can control it now, it looks yeah. like. You know who I really loved? Scarlet Spider. Yeah. <laughs> he was hilarious. How he's like... Always flexing. Yeah, he's and he's like always narrating what he's doing. He's like, looking at the wall. There's nothing there. <laughs> Perfect pose. <laughs> yeah. He was cracking me up. Those, uh, Andy Samberg voiced him. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was Andy Samberg. <laughs> yeah. He's got a cool suit too. Yeah, I looked him up. Then we had Issa Rae as Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman. She is the pregnant Spider-Woman from an alternate universe who rides that motorcycle. 
and she does not maintain a secret identity, actually. Karen Sony as Pivotier Prabarker, and he's the Indian version of Spider-Man from the alternate universe of Mumbatan. With the perfect hair. Yeah. <laughs> he was funny. He's, they're like, what do you put in your hair? Nothing. Just a little bit of coconut oil. <laughs> Good jeans. <laughs> Good jeans. <laughs> uh, Hobart Hobie Brown, Spider-Punk, played by Daniel Kaluuya. I was trying to pinpoint the voice yeah. for a while. Then I'm, then I'm like, it's Daniel Kaluuya because... It's like his normal speaking voice. Yeah, I think a lot of people <laughs> always forget that he's from England and he's British and he's got this kind of like thick Cockney accent in real life. I and, don't say Cockney. It's not Cockney. Well, they, You're well, going to offend some... They described the movie. That's what they said. Did they? They said, uh, you got a Scooby-Doo. They said that's in Cockney slang is a clue. Interesting. So I think that they were trying to specifically pinpoint. Right. I don't know I the don't Cockney know, accent for this film specifically. Maybe I'm saying, maybe I'm wrong. Well, yeah. I didn't say that. I said Kaluuya kind of has a Cockney esque accent. It's a pretty thick, like city London accent, which mm-hmm. is kind of like a guy Rich, guy Ritchie movie accents. Oh, for for sure, for yeah. Sure. So, but yeah. I love hearing him talk interviews because it, it sounds so cool. And then I thought that was a great character, super funny, very punk rock. He comes from a different dimension where there's a where London and his universe is ruled by a totalitarian regime, and he uses his guitar as his main weapon. It's like V for Vendetta. Yeah, and he's just like super punk rock, like anti-establishment. Doesn't care about it. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> and like, he's like so glad that Miles escapes the Spider Society. Yeah. Oscar Isaac as Miguel O'Hara, a.k.a. Spider-Man 2099, a muscular ninja vampire of Spider-Man of Irish and Mexican descent from this alternate universe set in the year 2099. He's the leader of the Spider Society, the group of spider people from the alternate universes tasked with protecting the multiverse. Oscar, um, Isaac described O'Hara as the one Spider-Man that doesn't have a sense of humor. (laughs) And basically he's from this dimension where he was the only Spider-Man until everything changed, the futuristic version of his world. And also he experimented with dimensional travel by going to a dimension where his family was alive but that ended up destroying that dimension and also was it connected to peter parker played by jake johnson's spider-man somehow right um he he well he didn't have a family and he found a universe where he did have a family so it's not like he had lost people he loved beforehand but he wanted to try having a family in that other verse and so when he joined it once it started collapsing the other spider people started helping so that's why um peter parker jake johnson ended up being there it wasn't connected to him but he was there to help try and fix it like the other spider like a ton of spider people showed up to try and fix it gotcha 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 yeah. gotcha and then we I, had- I would say um miguel has i think the best costume it's a pretty badass costume. i think his suit is my favorite for sure it's fucking awesome and i love the gauntlets the gauntlets are really cool then we also had some other great Spider-Man cameos. We had the black costume Spider-Man, which was awesome. We had Spider-Man's big time Tron costume. It was like a Tron style Spider-Man. We had Spider-Bite, who was basically that that Spider-Girl who was the virtual reality one that was controlling all of the computers and Spider-X. everything. Spider-X. Spider-X. Spider-Cat. <laughs> Spider-T-Rex, oh yeah. <laughs> Spider-X was hilarious. Uh, Spider-Man's armored costume made an appearance. S- Superior Spider with the uh, the the spider limbs and legs yeah, yeah. Uh, sticking out of his Spider-Man back. Beyond had a big had a big nice cameo. Manga Spider-Man, we had Spider-Cop had a cameo. We also had Spinneret and Spider-Ling. We had so many lady spiders. Spider-Monkey made a brief appearance. Spider-Cat like you said who spat <laughs> who spat webbing. It was ridiculous to see the the Spider-Rex because he like had a web slinger. Yeah. <laughs> I was like this is crazy. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> 
And yeah, there's a uh, brown bag, bag man, Spider-Man. He's got a brown, brown bag. paper bag on his head. <laughs> That's right. There was a werewolf, Spider-Man, Scarlet Spider. Like you said, that was, that was a really funny one. 1999 Spider-Man popped up in there as well as the spectacular Spider-Man too, right? Yeah, Spectacular Spider-Man was there. And Lego Spider-Man, obviously. So, But there's dozens more that we could get into. And they, they did the catch Spider-Man right now pointing at everyone. So every Spider-Man was pointing at each other, which was a great great reference to that iconic yeah. joke now. And um, the school counselor was played by Rachel Dratch That's from right. SNL. Yeah. I was like, whose voice? I was like, this is, whose voice is this? And I looked it up. I was like, oh, my God, it was Rachel Dratch. She's great. And the family, like you said earlier, is, is the heart of this film and, and the relationship between Gwen. And I, I like how this film does its best with what it can for exploring the relationship between Gwen and Miles because they both want to explore this connection that they have. But Gwen is hesitant not only because she's part of the Spider Society now, but also – and she's tracking, tracking Spot who is in Miles' dimension. She also knows the history of the multiverse now and, she know, and the Spider-Verse and knows the history that – Every time Peter or every, but the relationships between Gwen and Miles always go wrong, or between Gwen and Peter always go wrong. Or I think she said Gwen Peter, and Spider Man. Um, Gwen always falls for Peter and it never ends up well. Yeah, so I think yeah, yeah that's so what it, it always is. it never works out between between them. So she's scared to do it and, and go forward. So the relationship. one of them dies yeah. in every in every verse. One of them dies. Either Gwen dies or Peter dies. Just she's like, trying to prevent it. Yeah. So when it, when Peter is Spider Man, Gwen dies, and when Gwen is Spider Woman, Peter dies. That's the problem. And she has to keep so many secrets from him, especially how she's part of the Spider Society. That new bracelet, eventually showing him a little bit, but re- not letting him know that she's tracking a villain. That's why she's there. She's not even supposed to communicate with him. Yeah, it's really tragic because Miles feels betrayed by her multiple times because he thinks that she's there visiting him. But she's really there doing a mission, and then later on in the film, a, another incident where he sh- he thought that she saved him. She was um, warning him not to go save the kid in Mumbatton to save his life, saying it was too dangerous. Remember? Yeah. And then it's revealed later on that she was saying it's too dangerous, meaning the the future of the multiverse is at stake if you save her, save the captain, save the captain. Because it's a canon event. Because And so then Miles is like, I thought you were saying it's too dangerous and you wanted to save my life. All you cared about was that Stacy's life. You didn't care about my life. So there's multiple times where Gwen's job gets in the way of her wanting to be connected to Miles. And it's actually pretty tragic for Miles. And then that's what eventually changes her, makes her evolve by the end of the film to be someone who follows her orders for the good of the future of the multiverse to someone who is taking note of Miles doing his own thing and and wanting to be a friend to Miles at the end of the film and joining up with her with the squad to save Miles. So it was it was actually um she went through uh transformation and change throughout the course of the film which is what you want in a great character like that. Yeah, let's talk about the the Spider-Verse for a little bit. So basically we learned that which Miguel O'Hara is in charge of with the Spider Society that they have access to in our policing the Spider-Verse to prevent any anomalies, and these canon events are necessary and crucial to the health of the Spider-Verse and Spider-Dimension so that it doesn't collapse. And when, basically when Miles was bit by the spider from a different dimension, it caused the Peter Parker and Spider-Man in his dimension to die. That's why that original Spider-Man died, and he became Spider-Man, which made everything unstable in the multiverse and Spider-Verse. And these canon events have to happen, and one of the canon events include the death of the captain 
whether it's from Andrew Garfield's timeline or in <clears throat> Gwen Stacy's timeline, Spider Gwen's timeline, where fortunately for her, her father quits and doesn't want to doesn't become captain, even though he's about to be, as well as with Miles' father is about to be sworn in as captain. And basically, the third act of the film is Miles escaping this dimension to go save his father and prevent him from becoming captain and not dying. But uh, Miguel O'Hara basically says that, explains that these events have to happen, otherwise the dimension could collapse and reality could cease to exist. Yeah, and then it's revealed that Miles is the anomaly, obviously, and Miguel is afraid that the anomaly of Miles will dis- has the potential to destroy everything. But I think it has the ability to change everything. Um, it's kind of like the Neo of the Matrix, you know what I mean? To save everyone. And because he's not a Peter Parker and because he was never meant to be Spider-Man, him being Spider-Man means that um, he doesn't have to follow the rule of the canon events. And I think that ultimately he has the potential to change the canon events so they never have to happen in a way but also i mean they do kind of have to have to happen because they create the heroes of their verses you know and peter parker says we're shaped by you know our past and in in a lot of ways spider-man or or gwen stacy a spider-woman they become the heroes they are they became the heroes they are because of the tragedies of their past so maybe in a way they should experience the tragedy but i think that miles has the ability to make it so it doesn't have to happen so i think ultimately he has the ability to change the multiverse and change the idea that canon events are uh, a requirement well it's really interesting because we learn that miles story and journey is really miles against fate miles versus fate and determinism i love movies and stories that deal with these themes of following your path and following your fate or in determinism. Have you done these steps before? Is this predetermined? Are you supposed to do what's happening? And will this end up being part of the fate that maybe Miles thinks he's fighting? Was this supposed to happen? Was he supposed to get bit by a spider from a different dimension? Was that part of fate? Maybe we'll find out in the third film that it was supposed to happen, that Miguel O'Hara should have led it, or all these steps were necessary for fate and determinism to play out. Or is he fighting against fate, creating his own version of time and his own version of reality in his own path going forward, which is really fascinating. And I'm sure we'll find the answers to those questions in the third film. But I think that Miles versus Fate is one of the main themes of this story going forward. Yeah, and it was a great third act, like I said earlier, because you really... And you, you, Miguel's not even like a villain, really. He's more of someone who's he's trying to save everybody. And he sees Miles as a threat to that. You know what I mean? I think they show that when he saves people in his first yeah, entrance. Exactly. Know? He is a hero. Um, and he's an antagonist to Miles, but he's in a way a protagonist to the survival of every being in every multiverse. So in a way, he is a hero of, of his story, which I think makes for a good villain for sure. Whereas Spot is a full-on villain. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, Spot, because of what he became and how no one took him seriously. He got pushed to get as more powerful, as powerful as possible, travel dimensions to push his powers to the limits because no one took him seriously as a villain. And they may have even empathized with Spot. You know, he's like, I lost my job. I, I had to resort yeah. to a crime of life, which makes you kind of understand like his perspective. Like, look, this is what I look like now. This like skin. And then he accepts yeah. it and he's like, this is who I'm meant to be. You know, mm-hmm. what if this was all supposed to happen and, yeah. and just becoming even more powerful? So, but I, I'm really excited to see 
what Spot's powers completely are in the next film because we really only got a tease of them and how he can probably be in any dimension at any time. Uh, and I'm I'm most curious to see what the 42 Aaron and Miles are like. I think that dynamic is really fascinating and has a lot of potential to be some really interesting um, story beats and character arcs. So I can't wait to see them flesh out those two characters more extensively. And he's got to get out of there soon because he's starting to glitch already. And he, yeah. if he doesn't get out of that dimension ASAP, he's going to be in trouble. And I'm, but I'm sure, you know, Spider-Gwen, Spider-Woman and her team are going to come save him ASAP. And there's also, I mean, there's, is the, well, I guess there's not another Gwen in 42, is there? There's probably there. Yeah, there could be another Gwen. There could be another yeah. Gwen there. Who knows? There could. There's probably a, maybe. It'd be funny if there was a Gwen and Peter, um, interacting. But they aren't super. Like none of them. Neither of them become Spider. Well, the thing with Gwen is, if it was in Miles' world, that that Gwen would be connected with Peter Parker. Yeah, yeah. Not with Miles Morales. So maybe, maybe the Peter Parker in Forty Two will get involved, um, because they need a Spider-Man in that world. Yeah, because there's no Spider-Man, so Peter yeah. Parker exists probably, but was never bit. Yeah, so maybe they'll figure out how to get that Peter Parker uh, bit by a spider. To That's be a good point. So I, I, maybe that, I think that would be an interesting story because that world needs a Spider-Man yeah. because it's fallen into chaos and ruin. And even after the events of all this stuff, like once everybody leaves that 42 world, like they're still left in the open without a Spider-Man to protect um, the and create law and order amongst the criminals of that world. So I think that... It would be an interesting story beat to have that Peter Parker, Peter Parker 42 involved in the story and maybe eventually becoming Spider-Man. Yeah, and I think they did a, a really solid job with the story structure here. It, it was definitely chaotic at times, and like I said, this was supposed to be one movie, and they ended up just chopping it into two and, having, and finding an end point halfway through their story that they have, which definitely you notice. And like you said, you didn't realize the movie was about to end, but then it ends. It actually ends up being a great cliffhanger. It felt like a TV cliffhanger, like the end of a se se season of TV. Mm -hmm. It was just like a, a drastic cut kind of or end of a movie. But I'm sure because that wasn't the original plan. Yeah. But I think they did a solid job going with that, going forward with like, hey, we have to make a tough decision, turn this into two movies, but how tough will it be when they make bank and win three Oscars in a row? But um, <laughs> but um, But it's different than a movie – which you could compare to like Dune Part 1 and Dune Part 2 because that movie, those were planned going into the writing as being yeah. a two-parter for one book. So From the start, he's like, I'm making yeah. one. I've already been seeing people half. compare them and see like the difference in why it maybe worked better with Dune Part 1, but that they're completely different because Dune Part 1 was supposed to just be a Part 1. They wrote it that way, mm -hmm. and they planned the structure and even character development that way, whereas Spider across the Spider-Verse – was supposed to be just a one movie, but now turning it into two, they had to, you know, kind of do the best they could, which I think they did a really solid job when it wasn't the original plan going in. Yeah, I agree. And I think it works It works great where they cut it uh, with the cliffhanger, with the new squad rolling up, and we got to see the gang from the first film, you know, uh, Noor and Spider-Pig and, and all, all of them. And I think it was uh, the... In a way, we'll obviously see the the third film next year. I'm guessing it was like the perfect and really like the only way to really end it on that story beat in particular. So I think they did a terrific job with it. Yeah, I like I like this movie a lot, man. And I love the new tech involved and the Spire Society was really fascinating. And I loved how there was no post credit scene. There's no post credits. There's no mid credits. It's just 
the movie ended, man. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was nice. refreshing, not going to lie. It was pretty refreshing. Well, I mean, because the thing with post credit scenes is if people see a movie and then all they talk about is the post credit scene. It's, it's like, like, what about the movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was really great, uh-huh. and, and it was really cool to just see the credits it. roll. I don't care. I love the post credit title sequence, too. It was really beautiful animation. It was, it was really cool. I, I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. that a lot. Yeah, they did. They did a great job with the with that uh, ending, and I, I like the opening credits, uh, the logo, the company logos credits, uh, m- meshing between dimensions and styles. So it was really cool. And Gwen's whiplash opening, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. drumming, <laughs> <laughs> whiplash opening. <laughs> That's funny. That's pretty funny. It was cool. It was very jazzy. Yeah. Also, uh, Shea Wiggum played her dad. That's right. Yeah, I was like, whose voice is that? It's Shea Wiggum. He's a great actor. Yeah, a great voice cast, man. Everyone did a terrific job, mm-hmm. and I thought this movie was excellent. Can't wait for the next one. It's not that far away. March. Yeah. March, so March my big, my biggest question is: is the, are we going to see Peter Forty Two? I think so. But like, but like I said, they're definitely going to win Oscar again for best animated feature this year. And then next, I, I can't think of anything that even comes close to Spider Verse. And then March year. next year means that they'll be in there for the next year's Oscars. So oh. I think two years in a row they'll win best animated feature. What are the uh, animated films this year? Animated films. And honestly, when it comes to superhero films this year, it's between this and the Flash for the best of the year. I I, I have I doubt anything's going to top these two films. And so okay, so I think up for. Competition for this film for animated films is uh, TMNT, which looks really fun. And then I mean that's basically it for live act for for future length. I mean Elemental's not gonna Elemental. Uh, it doesn't look win. very good. Oh, uh, Super Mario will get nominated. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, I think that from what I can tell, and obviously I, we haven't seen them all, but it looks like TMNT and Spider Verse are going to be. The main competition for the animated feature film. I think this is just a shoe in, though. Oscar. This is a shoe in for a win. Yeah. But I mean, hey, TMNT looks like a lot of fun. It does. The animation look, looks, looks excellent. looks terrific. So, yeah. But I think it's just those two. You got anything else on Spider Verse? Across the Spider Verse? No, I, I want to see it again. So, I, I would love to see it again soon. And I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was fantastic. And I am ecstatic to see the third film and have our questions answered. Oh, yeah. Let us know how you enjoyed. Across the Spider-Verse by, if you're watching or listening on Spotify, you can leave a comment and we'll publish the comments. I'll put a poll up too that you can vote on. So we love when people interact on Spotify. Send us a DM, comment on YouTube, Instagram, whatever. We love communicating with you all. So let us know how you enjoyed Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Thanks for tuning in and become a patron today at, at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcasts. I was, about, I was about to say spiderverse.com. <laughs> well, James had a trouble at the opening of this episode. I don't know what you're he talk- kept calling it universe. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Spider-Man across the universe. Let's play it back. I don't, I don't, remember, <laughs> I don't remember hearing that. Oh, we cut it. We Anyways, cut it. let's end this ex- across Spider-Verse. See you next time. <laughs> this episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.